All right, John chapter 1. Verse 45 through 51. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father God, we have need again this morning to be reminded of the Gospel. May we not take for granted that just simply because we have a Bible and because we live in America that has a background in Christianity, because we can go to a bookstore and pick up a Bible that has the word Jesus in it, or there's a, a church with a steeple on just about every corner. The fact that Theological language is knit within the language of our culture and we oftentimes don't even see it. May we not take Jesus for granted. Father, may we see Jesus this morning. May your gospel do its searching work in our hearts today. Render hearts that are soft and malleable can receive the gospel that Christ might be made much of. Lord, may you unfold your word this morning for us. Peel back the curtain of heaven. Show us your glory in Jesus. Stir us to go out into the world this afternoon and tomorrow. That the light that you've put within our hearts through the gospel might shine out of us, not for our glory, but for yours. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. My, uh, my kids are big into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Narnia movies right now. And um, <coughs> Friday night, we, we watched the Prince Caspian movie. That's the second movie in the, in the, the series, at least, of the, you know, the Disney movies that, that came out. And if you're not familiar with the, the story in the second movie, um, the, the children who were... were kings and queens of, of Narnia at the end of the first movie, they've been gone. They've been gone, uh, gone a year in the real world, and when they return, it's been over a thousand years, and a lot's changed. And they find Narnia is in turmoil. They've been taken over by the Talmarines, and uh, it, it's just a setting for a great adventure story. I mean, all the stuff that, that, you know, that adventure stories for kids are, are made out of. Um, but, it, but it's interesting because at the early on, Lucy, the youngest one, 
um, she sees Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the, in the story. She sees Aslan, but nobody else sees Aslan. And this becomes a theme throughout the whole movie as, as everyone, even the other children, are looking to save and rescue Narnia, Lucy is looking to Aslan. And she's the only one who can see him, but nobody else can see him. So I want to raise the question this morning, what does it mean to see Jesus? What does it mean to see Jesus? Because John in his gospel, remember this is the purpose of John's gospel. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe, and believe here is synonymous with these first disciples of seeing Jesus. It's not just physically seeing him, but seeing him for who he is. John says that I'm writing these things so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, you'll have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of this whole gospel that we're going to spend 10 years in. <laughs> bring that up because we will. Um, so don't forget that. But what does it mean to see Jesus? What does it mean for the disciples here to see Jesus? If you remember last week, we started this kind of first uh, part of two of the disciple series, and John introduced us to the, several of the first disciples. We met John, who is the author of the gospel. We met Andrew. Uh, we met Philip. Um, and we met Peter, and we spent some time with, with them. We uh, went through kind of an, uh, an assessment of character. What did they like? And the theme from last week was genuine seekers produce genuine disciples. And, and the running theme there was that those who come to Jesus, and this is the come and see theme that we're, that we're looking at last week and we'll actually really dive more into this week. Those who come to Jesus, genuine hearts genuinely see Jesus. They find what they are after. And so while we looked at that last week in the disciples, this week we're going we're gonna to look at that further, this come and see. And the theme for this week is genuine disciples see Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do, and they treasure him. Let me say that again. G genuine disciples see Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do, and they treasure him. Last week, the, the application was an evaluation of our hearts. We kind of looked at the character of the, uh, of the first disciples, and we turned that back around. So, okay, let's look at our hearts. Where are we? And this week, we'll sort of go in a, in, a, in a backdoor approach. This week, what's the effect of genuine faith when it meets Jesus? So we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at that through the story of, of Nathaniel. A little bit about Nathaniel. Nathaniel's name means God-given. When he appears in some of the other lists, his, his, his name is Bartholomew which is a transliteration, transliteration of, uh, of Bar-Ptolemy, or son of Ptolemy. So his given name is Nathaniel. He's Nathaniel, son of Ptolemy. So if you see the two different names in the, the list, don't think that somebody got it mixed up. No, he's got a given name, and then he's got the you know, son of Ptolemy. What's interesting about Nathaniel is he only, outside of the, the list of the 12 apostles, and these 12, these 12 first disciples, he, he only appears two other times in Scripture that give us a character reference. One is here in, in John 1, and then again at the very end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21, verse 2, where he's mentioned among those 
when Peter says uh, Jesus has died, he's, uh, uh, he's been buried, and the, the, the apostles are huddled together, and they're not sure what to do, and Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And Nathaniel is mentioned among those who say, I'm coming with you. So perhaps he was a fisherman too. We know that he was from Cana. He was a good friend of Philip. Um, and and, uh, um, and so, so, so they, were, they were good friends even before this because it's Philip who, if you remember last week, Philip's the one who when Jesus called him, he went and found Nathaniel and told Nathaniel. Interesting, Philip's name means lover of horses. He would have been great friends with the Groves, probably would have hung out with the horses last week at our, at our grill out. So there's a little side footnote for you. Um, but both of these men, both Philip and Nathaniel, were, were students of the Old Testament. And we see that from verse 45 because Philip finds Nathaniel and what does he say? He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That's understood when he says that, Nathaniel understands what he's saying. The anticipated Messiah. This is what Moses in the law and the Old Testament and, and the prophets, he's, he's, he's grouping together there all of the Old Testament. He says, well, everything that the Old Testament has been pointing to, towards, we have found him. And it assumes Nathaniel, Nathaniel understands what he's talking about. He, he gets this. And not only that, but he's anticipating it. Philip is excited about this, and he goes and shares it with somebody he feels like is going to be excited too. That's his friend Nathaniel. Now, what's interesting right here is when we look at Nathaniel, we find a man who has faith, but he's also got questions. Because Nathaniel's response to Philip is interesting. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's got questions about this guy, straight off the bat. Because Nathaniel says, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now perhaps, perhaps Nathaniel's response is one of prejudice. One of prejudice. In, 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 the, uh, in, in first century Palestine, the Galileans were looked down upon by everybody else. But of the Galileans, the Nazarites, or the, 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 Na, the people from Nazareth, they were despised even more. Sort of the bottom of the barrel. Now, regardless of where you grew up, you probably are kind of familiar with sort of town rivalries or even kind of the, the places that mom and dad said don't go there. You know, unsavory characters hang out there. Don't, don't go there. Or you've met somebody and, you know, you're like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from this place. Oh, you're from there. I'm going to stand over here, you know. And, and so perhaps that's, that's where Nathaniel comes from. You know, he, he's already postured. He's from Cana. That's an outside, that's a city just not too far from, uh, from Nazareth. And so perhaps he's got this, this posture of prejudice. He doesn't like Nazarites. Doesn't like them. He's got something against it. And, and when he finds that Philip has said the Messiah is Jesus who's from Nazareth, automatically he's like, well, wait a minute. That rubs me wrong. That, that rubs me wrong. And, and, and maybe you've talked to somebody, or maybe this was you, or maybe this is you. You start hearing talk about Jesus from, from the Scripture or things like that, and the response is, well, my God wouldn't do that. That, that just that doesn't sit well with my stomach. I don't like that. It's, it's a prejudice. 
Now, to be fair, perhaps Nathaniel's question is an honest question. Per- perhaps it's a, it's a genuine question of, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What he's saying, perhaps, is, Philip, you know the Old Testament. The Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth. It's, it's not there. This is parallel to the question that's posed to Nicodemus later in John, where the Pharisees say, look, you're from Galilee. You search the scriptures. No prophet comes from Galilee, let alone, in this case, the Messiah. So perhaps it's, perhaps it's an honest question. But, but regardless, the response is the same. Philip responds very instructionally for us. What does he say? He doesn't sit there and kind of argue with him. Well, yeah, no, 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 you got to understand. Let's, let's open the scriptures. Let's go. What does he say? Let's come and see. Come and see. And it's helpful for us because genuine heart, uh, the, the genuine heart of faith may have questions. And, and questions are okay. We shouldn't be afraid to ask questions of Scripture. So how does that square? How does that square? Last week I, I walked through just kind of a timeline for how does all of these events kind of fit within, the, uh, within Jesus, the early form of Jesus' ministry with his baptism, his calling of the disciples, and, and temptation in the desert, because in reading, I'm like, well, wait a minute, there's something is struggling here. And rather than just kind of sticking in a dark corner, me being the Philip type that I am that measures my azaleas out, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, I got to know. And so I spend two hours digging through this and going, going Lord, show me. I trust that, I trust that, your, that your word is true. It's, infa- it's infallible and that there's benefit and, and there's beauty in having the different perspectives of the, of the gospels that are written Help me, help me see. And so we, should, we shouldn't be afraid to ask those questions and trust that the Lord will give us clear answers that are consistent with his character and his nature in, in his word. So the genuine heart of faith may have questions, but will seek out Jesus for who he really is. Because what does Nathaniel do? He doesn't go, no, I'm not interested. He, he goes. He goes with Philip. But also... The cure for prejudice and the cure for doubt is to come face to face with reality. It's to genuinely come face to face with reality and who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus character? What is he all about? Is he really what the law and the Old Testaments have said he would be? And that's just what Nathaniel does. He goes to see Jesus, but what we find is that those who come to see Jesus, Jesus sees them. Look at what happens. Nathaniel comes to, or verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said to him, uh, and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Notice how Jesus responds. Here's a man who, who comes with doubts and questions. It's, it's interesting. He's, he says he's a, a, a man, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. You know, you can have a prejudice and I, and I think still be a person who's not deceptive. You know, it, it's, it's not untrue and it's not deceptive to say that the people in this town are evil. You know, even if only 99 out of 100 are. You know, he, that's speaking the truth. But it, regardless, either way, Nathaniel comes with doubts and he, he comes with questions. 
And Jesus doesn't respond, Jesus responds to this man by pointing to his heart. Jesus specifically points to him and says, um, uh, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now what you've got to realize is that I- at this time, most of the Jews were putting on the veneer of rid- religion when behind that was really hypocrisy. Luke gives us a good window into this. In Luke chapter 3, at the baptism, before the baptism of Jesus, Luke says crowds were coming to John the Baptist and John was pointing to them, and, and he was basically saying, you're not honest seekers, you're vipers. Now in Matthew's gospel, I think it's Matthew, see Matthew or Mark, the, the, uh, Matthew points out, he, he, he takes out of the crowd, and he sort of it, it verbally picks out the Pharisees, and he highlights them for reasons that are within the context of the thrust of that gospel. But Luke takes the larger umbrella and he says, well, it's not just the Pharisees. There are other Jews within this, this crowd, many who are coming for other reasons. You see, they were talkative when it came to religious things, but their actions betrayed darker hearts. And John calls them out on it. You're coming saying that you're repenting, but you're not repenting. And there were some who came to John and they said, Look, we know our deeds. We know our darkness. What shall we do? And John says to them, put action to your repentance. Give to those who have need. If you have a business or, or you're a tax collector, collect only what, what the law gives you a right to collect. Don't, don't, ex- uh, don't be an extortionist. Be content with your earnings. Don't steal. Verse 80 says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now if we pause here, isn't this similar to where American Christianity is today? That many will talk about spiritual things, but how many people bear genuine fruits from branches of repentance that are connected to a root of faith in, the, in, in Jesus? Did you follow that? You see, Nathaniel was a rare individual in his day, and Jesus points him out. Nathaniel's, Nathaniel types are rare in our day as well. You see, Nathaniel wasn't sinless, but the soil of his heart was good for planting the seed of the gospel. He wasn't foolish and gullible. In fact, I mean, he was a deep thinker. He was an honest and careful thinker. But he genuinely sought Jesus out. And his response is, is interesting as well. He says, Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? He's an honest man, and this is an honest question. You know, now, now Nathaniel comes in, and Jesus calls him. You know, says this of him, speaks about his character. You know, and Nathaniel goes, "How do you know me?" It, it, it's funny. In working on job sites, I'm 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 known within you know our our uh, our, our crews as as the trim guy. You know, I'm not the electrician, I'm not the framing guy. I'm the trim guy. You know, and so a new guy comes on, and you know he's being trained, and uh, I walk onto a job site, maybe meet him for the first time, and he goes, "Oh, you're the trim guy." Speaking of, you know, that's that says something of my identity, you know, for better or for worse. A- and I'm like, yeah, so a natural response is, "Well, how do you know me?" And I'm going to look at Alan and go, "Alan, what have you told him?" <laughs> you know, and, and so it would be natural for for Nathaniel to go, "Okay, you know, he's maybe he's known amongst his cir- uh, circle of friends as." 
the guy who there's no deceit in. You know, he's just an honest, straightforward guy. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to try and manipulate or anything. He's just a straight shooter. And maybe he's sitting there looking at Philip going, all right, what'd you tell him? And Jesus here reveals his omniscience. Jesus, for a moment, he takes and he peels back the curtain and he lets us see his glory. Here's what he says. Jesus says in verse 48, Jesus answered him and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, to really grasp the, the full weight of this, you've got to understand something about, uh, about the culture, is that this is a hot place, okay? The, the houses got hot. People ran cooking fires all day long, and it could get unbearable inside. And so people would plant trees around their homes in order to give shade, or they would build homes in near where trees already existed to give some shade and some relief. And fig trees, which were native to the area, which stood about 15 feet wide, 25, 35 feet tall. I mean, you could picture one of the, the, the new screen porches that are being built out there that are, you know, big in size. I mean, you've got a giant screen porch, just a natural screen porch. It was a great place, a great cool haven from the heat of the day. And this was probably Nathaniel's usual place to just get away from things, to go, to pray, to meditate on Scripture, this was where he went to, in a sense, have his quiet time. You know, and this was probably a regular thing for him. This is where, let me read from Psalm 139. This is David speaking of God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. See, David is pointing to God and saying, God knows me intimately in this way. And Jesus here peels back that curtain and he points to Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, I, I saw you're getting up this morning. I see, I'll see you're lying down. I, I see your heart. I know you. Jesus sees Nathaniel's heart. And there's application for us there, isn't there? You see, Jesus won't be restricted to a fishbowl that we can just simply look at, we can have theological banter about, or that we can sort of set on our calendar, look at, point to, people come in, that He will look into us. And this is what the Gospel does. It's the Gospel that's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and, uh, soul and spirit of both joint and marrow. And when it gets where it's going, it does its judging work. It starts sifting there. The gospel examines our hearts. See, God sees our private lives. He sees our struggles. He sees our wrestlings. He's not ignorant of them, nor is He apathetic, but He meets us in the middle of them. But He also sees if we're dishonest. He sees if we're playing at being Christian. 
You can see this in, John, in, uh, in Revelation chapter 3 when John, the same, author, uh, uh, same human author of the gospel, writes his final letter and he writes to the ch- to, uh, letters to the churches and of the church at Sardis. He says, and, and this is the Lord speaking through John directly saying, I see you, that, that you think you are full of life, but you're full of dead works. You're playing at being Christian. Of the, of the Laodiceans. He says, you're lukewarm. You're, lu- you're lukewarm. I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold. But you're lukewarm because you're lukewarm. I'll spit you out. That Christ sees who we truly are in the dark. That's what he says of, uh, of Nathaniel. So, when the true disciple comes to Jesus... Looking for Jesus, what in turn happens is Jesus looks right into you. And the natural question comes out of Psalm 139 and saying, Lord, examine my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? Is, is, there, is there any deceit in me? You've got to do something about it. There's darkness here. Something's not right. You've got to do something about this. And so, Christ sees us. When we come to Jesus honestly, genuinely, the first thing that happens is Christ sees us. But not only that, what is it? We've still got to answer that question. What is it that we see when we see Jesus? I think here's Nathaniel's answer. We see Jesus as the world's greatest need. Look at Nathaniel's confession in verse 49. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now that's a convenient statement, isn't it? How about John just kind of throwing that right in there? Where does that come from? Where does it come from? John's writing this. Keep in mind, again, John is writing this as this is a personal eyewitness. And he's pulling this story from Nathaniel. Now, maybe they're sitting when, as they sat around the campfire, Jesus is sleeping, and the disciples are sharing about, you know, how'd you come to, to meet him? And Nathaniel tells his story. And that grips John. He says, I've got to share that with other people. So here, here's Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's listening to Jesus, and Jesus peels back that curtain, showing his omniscience, saying, I see you. When you were under that fig tree, when you were praying, when you were wrestling over Scripture, when you were struggling, I saw you. And Nathaniel comes back, and all of a sudden, things from the Old Testament are clicking. And he goes, you're the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, let me just go to a few places in Scripture and, and help show you where I think those things are connecting. Okay? Just a few of these. Micah 5.2. Micah, and, and again, these are, keep in mind the context of, of these scriptures is important. Okay? Nathaniel didn't have a Bible that he could sit down and just read all the time. You know? but, but even if he did not specifically memorize verses, the context of when these letters and when these, when these things were penned, he would have known all of the stories. They would have been read to him. And so the context would have played a huge role in his understanding. So Micah writes about 22 years before the fall of Israel to the Assyrians. 
he writes, and he writes almost as a legal case. His letter is like a legal case written out. Here's the judgments against Israel. Here's where you're falling short uh, uh, of justice and the need for peace. But he writes of hope that an eternal king is coming. And in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, From you, Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. There's king. His going forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Do you, do you hear that? The king who will come and save you will be from, etern- from, from eternality. He won't have a beginning. Right? Well, well, who's that? That's, that's God. Right? Psalm 2, verse 7. And Psalm 2 was understood already to be a messianic song, pointing towards the Messiah. David writes, and he says of this, this Messiah, and he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And I can't help when I read that to go, because we just were at Jesus' baptism. What was the Father's blessing upon the Son? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What about Zephaniah 3? I know Zephaniah is your, your favorite book of the Bible. Many of you were up late last night, you know, studying those three chapters. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize this for you anyways. Zephaniah writes about 44 years before the Babylonians come and they, uh, and, and they sack Judah and, and Judah falls. Zephaniah writes of judgment and he writes that God's going to bring judgment on, on his people, but he's going to leave a remnant. He's, he's going to leave a remnant. And he says that of this remnant, it's interesting that he says in uh, chapter 3, verse I didn't write it down. I think oh, it's I think it's 17. Anyways, he writes and he says of this remnant, no deceitful tongue will be found in their mouth. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus finds Nathaniel, and here's the king who's coming, and he says, behold, an, an, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. When the when the majority, there's deception, there's dishonor, there's hypocrisy. There's a remnant. Zephaniah 3:15. Zephaniah writes, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. In verse 17, the Lord your God will be in your midst. That the king of Israel and the Lord your God will be there. I know. Would have blown their minds and blows their minds, blows their minds later that that's the one and the same. Let's do one more. Isn't this fun? Isn't this great? Old Testament's wonderful. I love it. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah writes, so, so this, is after, uh, uh, this is after the fall. Everybody's been uh, exiled and then they've come back. They've come back and they started rebuilding the temple. The temple work pauses. And Zechariah is preaching. He's a prophet. And temple work begins to resume. And Zechariah prophesies of a promise of hope. And that's going to include a king. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of, Jer- of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on the foal of a donkey. That's verse 9. The end of verse 10 says, He will speak peace to the nations. And, and so Nathaniel's hearing this, and, and he's not just pulling this out of thin air. This isn't reconstruction language that somewhere in the 3rd or 4th century somebody said, well, we need to edit this in the Bible so it makes sense. 
John's going, no, no, no. Nathaniel's connecting the dots. He knows his Old Testament. He knows this is what's been promised. And all of a sudden, dots are connecting. The picture's coming into play. This is the Son of God. This is the King of Israel. But that's not just a theological affirmation. It's not just going, oh, this is cool, right? Something changed in, this, uh, in Nathaniel's heart. He's drawn to Jesus. The, those questions, that prejudice, whatever was there is broken down and, and, and Nathaniel steps into fellowship with Jesus. You see, Christ was the fulfillment of what Nathaniel was looking for. And, and it wasn't on Nathaniel's own terms. It was on Christ's terms. You've got you to get that. Otherwise, Jesus becomes something else. But it's bigger than that. Because we could stop right there, right? We could stop right there. But Jesus goes on. He goes on further, right? Where he, he, he has this conversation with Nathaniel, and he kind of pulls back the curtain, lets his glory shine through a little bit. Now he just throws the curtain open. Watch what happens. Because this is important. Because this is bigger than this. Because Christ is not just the little missing puzzle piece to your story, to the picture of your life. It says, oh, well, now everything makes sense. He's more than just the local savior of first century Jews in Palestine. That's what he shows to Nathaniel. I'll get ahead of myself. So, verse 50 and 51. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Stop right there. His argument is from the lesser to the greater. Jesus shows some of his omniscience to, to Nathaniel. Nathaniel's eyes are, are open. He's connecting, he's connecting the dots as limited as he can. And, and he, he makes this phenomenal profession of faith. And, and Jesus says it's actually a bigger deal than that. It's a bigger deal than that. <coughs> and then he relays the story from Genesis 28. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're talking about a specific instance in the Old Testament that would have just rushed Nathaniel's mind. This is, Jesus is pointing back to, to Genesis 28, verse 12, when um, Jacob has a dream of what we will call Jacob's ladder. Jacob dreams and he, and he sees, the, he sees uh, a ladder extending from earth to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And God speaks to Jacob through this dream. He reaffirms his covenant promise that he made with Abraham and with Isaac that he will give him the land that's under his feet and that his descendants will multiply. And, and here's the kicker. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your descendants. Right there, that was the promise to, to Abraham. I'm going I'm to bless the nations. You don't have a kid. You've you got no hope of posterity, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, your, your descendants will outnumber the stars. This is what I'm going to do. And he does that. And then he comes to Isaac. Same promise. He comes to Jacob, reaffirms that. But he has this vision, kind of weird vision of a, of a ladder. Heaven, earth, angels of God ascending and descending on, on, on that. Well, what's that about? Right? What's that about? Well, Jesus rephrases this dream. He pulls that dream and he, and he, he, re, he rephrases it. He says, I'm, I'm the ladder, Nathaniel. I'm that ladder. Not, not the Jews, right? The, the, the Jews who were God's covenant people 
given God's covenant law, you're, you're supposed to show the nations what it looks like to, you know, to, to live under my rule. How'd they do with that? They failed, right? You know, and I say that humbly, not like I'm doing any better. You know, but here's God gives them the law, and sin just wrecks things. Sin just wrecks things. And Jesus says, I'm the latter. I'm the means through which the nations will receive the blessing of God. Do you see this? The world doesn't need a good example. Many people come to Jesus and say, well, who is Jesus? When you, when you see Jesus, what do you see? Oh, well, he's a good example. The world doesn't need a good example. It needs saving. It needs rescuing. In John chapter 3, I love pulling the wind out from under Alan's sermons that are coming up too, by the way. <laughs> anyway, John, John chapter 3, which we'll get to. John chapter 3, Jesus came to not to condemn the world, right? But to, but to save it. That implies one, th- uh, one thing at the very least. It assumes the world needs rescuing. The world needs rescuing from something. But why is the world condemned? Jesus doesn't condemn the world. A lot of people will lift that up. Oh, well, we need to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't, didn't come to condemn the world. It says that the world was condemned already. The, the posture before Jesus came was condemnation. Sin was co- what caused the brokenness. It caused the condemnation that the justice of God was required to land upon all of humanity. That, that's the brokenness between man and God. We can't get there through our own efforts. I mentioned Prince Caspian, and I'll, re- I'll return to it momentarily. So in the, in the picture, and I suggest all you go home, it's rainy afternoon, go rent this movie. It's fantastic. In the movie, the, the, the town marines, who are people, they're humans, by the way, have taken over Narnia, but they, they, they represent the sin nature. They've taken over Narnia, and everybody's the, the, the children are trying to save it. And there's even one of the Talmarines, Prince Caspian, whose eyes are open to what's going on, and he wants to save Narnia and restore peace, but they can't do it in themselves because they're looking within themselves. Pride and arrogance become the, the, the evil that has to be battled there, and it, it's what prevents them from rescuing. Narnia is in need of rescue, but they can't do it in and of themselves. Lucy, little Lucy, She's the only one who sees Aslan and says, As- we, Aslan needs to rescue us. Now granted, it's been a thousand years. A lot of these people, a lot of these Narnians, are, don't, they don't even believe that Aslan exists. But Lucy, she says, we, we need Aslan. And, the, and the, a lot of the, some of the other children, they're like, no, we can do this. We can kind of do this ourselves. You know, No, it's up to us. It's up to us. And, and towards the end of the movie, there's a great battle, and they send Lucy out because she can see... She's the only one who can see. She goes and she finds Aslan. And she, she, there's, a, there's a wonderful scene with Aslan in there. And, 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 she, and, and Lucy says, are you going to come rescue us? And Aslan says, yes, I'll come rescue you, but I need you to be brave. And Lucy says, oh, I'm, I'm not very brave. And, and Aslan says, if you were any braver, you'd be a lioness. Now, he's not just patting her on the back and trying to you know, lift up a little child. What's he saying? Bravery is not, let's look within ourselves for ourselves to be our own rescuers. Let's pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The bravest one there was the one that looked to the true rescuer and said, that I, d- I, need th- I, need th- I need him. I need him. 
And this is what Christ is saying. I'm the true rescuer. I'm the true rescuer. He, he refers here to, uh, to J- Daniel chapter 7. We, we, we're introduced to this first term that will be used much, uh, many times later when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, this is where this comes from. Daniel, in one of Daniel's visions, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Here's where the, here's where the glory of the Lord is coming. He's seeing this and says, One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom all that all the people's Nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, that's me. That's, that's me. Paul writes later in Philippians chapter 2, says that because of Christ's humility, because he subjected himself to the Father, because he went to the cross and he died on the cross and he took the burden and punishment of sin on himself, that the Father has given all of the kingdoms of the world over to the Son, that one day all the world will confess that Jesus is Lord. See, Nathaniel says, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus says, yes, but what is it going to take to reconcile the world to God? It's going to take the divine Son of God who is also the Son of Man. That's what it's going to take. And you've got to think for Nathaniel as he's listening to this, <laughs> blows his mind. But not only that, it draws him to Jesus. We'll just revisit our theme once more that the genuine disciple sees Jesus for who he is, what he's come to do, and that requires Jesus examining us. There's, there's a dual looking there that occurs. A genuine disciple sees Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do and treasures him. Now, where do I get the treasuring part? Because it doesn't look like there's any treasuring here, but there actually is. Because what's the effect of this meeting upon Nathaniel? When Nathaniel meets Christ, what, what happens? Does he just go, hey, that's pretty cool. I'm going to journal about it. I'm going to write a blog. No. He follows Jesus. He, follow, he leaves everything and he follows Christ. Notice, Nathan- Jesus didn't offer na- to Nathaniel any material promises. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to fix your marriage. Hey, I'm going to give you a great job. You're going to have a red horse and you're going to name it Ferrari. It doesn't happen. He says, I'm the fulfillment of, of the, all of that the Old Testament has, has said. Everything that, that, that the law could not do, I'm it. I, I'm, I'm going to reconcile humanity to God. Are you with me? And Nathaniel says, I can be about that. A.W. Pink says this. He says, every heart has its object. And for Nathaniel, Nathaniel says, Jesus is it. I'm going to follow him. Christ is worthy of our worship because of who he is and what he's done to reconcile us to God. That's it. 
And so let me close with some application questions. Just again, recall that purpose of John's gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. It's the whole reason he's written his gospel. It stands very much in contrast to the, to the American version of the gospel that's being permeated now. Jesus gets you stuff. It's not there. That's not, that's not good news. It's just news. And it will fade. Nathaniel sticks with Jesus, even in doubting. Remember, he's, he's, he, he's, of, he's of the group that when Jesus goes to the cross, he flees. He's not perfect. He's not sinless. But he's honest and he's a genuine follower and his heart treasures Jesus. And he sees, as we should see, that the greatest need for the world is saving from sin. It's the answer to every troubling moral, situational question. It's the old song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. It's not just a trite saying. I mean, when somebody pinned that, they like really thought about it. You know, that's really true. So let me ask a few questions. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? What, what, do, you, what do you see? Do you, do you see Jesus as an accessory to you? Do you see him as, well, he's just kind of part of this culture? Or do you, do you see him as the world's greatest need? Do you see him as your greatest need? Do you see him as the people you come in contact with? This, they need Jesus most. They need saving from sin. Just as much as I need saving from sin. That when we send missionaries like Robbie out, what's the message that's being taken? This country needs saving from sin. They need Jesus. Our missionaries that are in China and in Ireland, these countries need saving from sin because Christ has come to do that. He's worthy of worship in Ireland. He's worthy of worship in Bangladesh. He's worthy of worship in, in Miami, in Greenville, in Greer, in China, in all of these places because of who he is and what he came to do. That's why he's worthy of worship. That's why the Father gives to him the keys to the kingdom. That's why he says, I'm going to open the scroll. So when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Thirdly, when you talk to others who say they follow Jesus, what do they see? This isn't a let's cast judgment on everybody, but let's be Nathaniel's and let's, let's take an honest assessment of what other people say. Because Christian language permeates so much of our conversation. And many people will say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that you see Jesus? Don't be fooled by a false gospel that's gilded in biblical language because that may be the very opportunity that the Lord is giving you to speak the genuine gospel into the life of somebody who really, really needs it. So what do you see when you see Jesus? When you look at, when you talk to others who say they follow Jesus, what do they see? And then lastly, when you point others to Jesus, and you do, by the way, 
As, as soon as the mark of a Christian is on you and in a, in a, in a relationship, you're going to point them to a Jesus. Whether you talk about it or not. What do you show them? Is your life postured in such a way that you say, I, wanna, I, I, I want everything in my life to echo Christ and that others would see that. That when they see me, they don't see me, they see, the, they see this Jesus. They see Jesus as He is. Who He is and what He's come to do. That He really is all that, that the apostles say that He is. It's not making things up. That's faith in the genuine gospel that has an effect on our hearts and the Holy Spirit does its work that then overflows into the lives of other people. That's the way it works. It's when you point out this to Jesus and you do in one way or the other. What do you show them? I started with Prince Gatsby and I'll close with it. So one of my favorite scenes in that movie comes at the very end. and w- One of Lucy's friends is this little dwarf who's uh, he's a bit of a kind of cantankerous fellow um, but but he's uh, he's a wonderful little character but throughout the whole movie he's just basically like I don't believe in fairy tales speaking of Aslan he, he doesn't he doesn't see and at the end of the movie after Aslan's come and you know the battles won and the uh, and the kingdom is being restored they're on the banks of this river and and Aslan's standing there and Lucy's off to one side and Aslan says where's your little friend you've been telling me about and Lucy brings the little dwarf before him and the dwarf comes humbly and he takes his sword and he bows before Aslan and Aslan roars and it just shakes the dwarf and he, yeah, you can tell, it takes his breath away. And, and Lucy says this, she looks at the little dwarf and she says, do you see him now? And he goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> do you see Jesus? And you look at the gospel, and you look at scripture, and you look at the world around you, do you see Jesus? Let's pray.